So on today's episode, we're going to talk about the progenitor of the multimillionaire. One of the richest people to ever live in the history of the United States. Possibly the entire world. We've talked about Rockefeller. We've talked about Carnegie. But today, we're going to talk about Cornelius Vanderbilt. On this episode of Prestigious Minds. So now that we have your attention, I'm going to have to uh, shill our social media so that we may be able to grow. So please go follow us on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter at pmindspod or Prestigious Minds. It helps us get discovered so that we may share this with more people. So if you if you enjoy our content, please share it with your friends and family. Also, very much appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or anywhere you listen. If you want to take the time out to tell us what you think of the show, maybe give us some suggestions for future series and episodes. It would be greatly appreciated. Let's get back to, to why you're here, which is Cornelius Vanderbilt. We've added a new segment to kind of ease into the episode, and that's going to be talking about the beer that we're drinking. And on this episode, I happen to be drinking an Imperial Amber Ale from Comis? Comis? It's a Polish brewery. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Rob, do you, do you have a better pronunciation? <laughs> or am I just pronouncing it all funky-like? I don't think we're either one of us are going to get that right. But I've had that beer before, specifically the Russian stout, and it's very good. If you're a more casual drinker like I am, then you will definitely like it as a, a dessert almost. Yeah, this Amarillo is actually, it tastes exactly the way you would expect it to taste in terms of it's a strong Amber L. You don't, it's not too much, it's not too little. So it doesn't have that, you know, really crappy, like overly commercialized beer taste, but it also isn't super, I would say doesn't have a bunch of added flavors. So it's a solid amber ale. If you're just like, I want a casual beer, like you just said, perfect, perfect. So what what are you drinking over there today, Rob? I am drinking Maryland's own Dunclaw Brewery. Hopportunity awaits. It's a hazy IPA. It tastes pretty good. It's pretty unfiltered. There's a lot of sediment in the bottom, and I hope that's the way it's supposed to be. It was on the 50% off rack for a dent can, but... Well, that is why they call it hazy. This one was extra hazy. It was like the London fog of hazy. Hey, uh, so so what you what'd you think about it? You, you like it? What, what, do you, what do you rate it? Ooh, I mean, it was fruity. It was good. I mean, it's pretty high alcohol content, so I'll probably just stick with this one today. Zero that, to five, what? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it four out of five. Dale Yez. Four out of five. That's pretty. That's pretty good score. Yeah. I'm gonna, I think so. I think moving forward, because at some point we're gonna have a lot of beer covered on this podcast too. Is maybe I have to be a little bit more critical on the beer because I may find one and I'm like that is a five out of five. But if I've already ranked like a mediocre beer at a four, I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm saying I'm talking about myself, but. I'm going to have to rank this so out of all, all beers, so I guess we should talk about our, our biases or bias. I predominantly prefer dessert stouts and darker beer. also do like sours and wheat beers, wheat, well, wheat else. This Amber L, if I'm going to say overall everything, I'm probably going to give it a three middle, uh, well, let me restate that. I'm going to give it a three beer cans. Three crushed beer cans. 
I, I like it. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I do like that it comes in an actual pint. That is fascinating. Yeah. I think anything that's below like a 3.5, I probably wouldn't buy again, honestly. Because if I read like four and above, it's kind of where it's like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind buying a few of those. I would drink it way more than uh, once a month, you know. Yes. There's actually a beer that I almost picked up out of the fridge that I will probably have before the next recording of our episodes. It is phenomenal. I will definitely be covering it here. But anyway. Well, that leads me into a question. What do you think the subject of our podcast, Mr. Cornelius Vanderbilt, what do you think he would drink? Given, you know, him being a sailor by by trade at the beginning of his life, I would say he probably drink rum. Think so? He I don't know. A, he, he was he, a sa- He wasn't a he, sailor. He, he, he wasn't an ocean right. ferry sailor. He was a farrier. So yeah. I'm thinking he would probably have something inexpensive, probably at one of his... Uh, PBR. Oh, yeah. PBR, totally. Before, I mean, before it was a hipster beer. Totally. But I don't even know if he drank. Who knows? His upbringing could have prohibited that. And, you know, who knows? He may have liked, you know, wine or other forms of liquor. But anyway... I uh I think this is a good time to roll into Vanderbilt's early life. We have kind of mixed up the order in which we talked about the most famous tycoons of America, starting with Rockefeller and then going to Carnegie, and now we're finally hitting Vanderbilt. And most times, Vanderbilt is considered the first of these Gilded Age business mongols. I don't think he's the most popular. That's why I think we kind of started with Rockefeller, because it's the what we both knew and were interested in. Vanderbilt came from a Dutch heritage, and he was born May 27th, 1794, Staten Island, New York. So he was raised in a predominantly Dutch household, at least what you would consider Dutch in America. If you don't know anything about the history of the Dutch people in America, this is just a, a short, brief explanation. Is As they came over and as they started communities here, they actually kind of separated their languages between actual Dutch and what you would consider American Dutch, to where it was almost unrecognizable between the two. So, so can do you know what the differences were? Was it because they were mixing English and Dutch together? Right. I, I believe that's what it was. They were just kind of making a Dutch-English, I guess you would consider it not Pennsylvania. It's kind of like Pennsylvania Dutch is now that the Amish would speak. Okay, okay. So it's so it's more than a dialect because like we can understand what other people in the country say in English or even other countries, but we was definitely there's probably some overlap, but it was not if you went to try to go to the Netherlands and speak it, you probably wouldn't get very far. It'd be like broken English here. Well, now that I did not know. That's very fascinating. Yep. Moving moving from that, so he was born in Staten Island, New York. His father was a farmer. He was a farmer yep. and a farrier. Yeah, his father and um, his parents in general were, were farmers. And something interesting about the the Dutch people, they farmed for profit. They were the, one of the only people at the time that, that farmed for profit, not for just them, not for themselves. So you're, so we're talking about the end of the 1700s. So this is before right. before the big boom of uh, southern or even northern states uh, producing tobacco and all this stuff to ship to, to Britain. Well, see, that's the thing is the American colonies were started just to give 
raw materials to the colonies. So you used to have this triangle trade that it would go, uh, I can't remember exactly what the route was, but we didn't really farm like you would think Europeans farm. We farmed raw materials, tobacco, cotton, things for industry. That's how we started. After the revolution, it was kind of a, a, especially because we were mostly in the East Coast, it was kind of a, a different thing for us to actually grow food and stuff predominantly. Well, you had to sustain the populations, right? And it's a whole lot cheaper if you grow it in your backyard, so to speak, than it is to go across the ocean. Right. Well, that was some of the issue that the uh, the Americans had with the English, is we were trying to... They were, I mean, we were colonies to them, so they sent us over just to get raw materials from the New World. Lumber to build chips, whatnot, textile materials, tobacco. It wasn't supposed to be a... I mean, it was supposed to be a self-sustaining colony, but... You're talking when Vanderbilt was born, 1794. That was around the hills of the Revolution. So we were j- just starting to make our own way. Yeah, and and they were pretty poor too growing up. So we we had mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast episode that Vanderbilt d- was not super well educated. He quit school when he was age of 11 to help his father with his ferry business. It's rumored to have that he had. Um, only been in school for a few months and then gave it up because so, he just did not like it. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's very fascinating that he chose not to go to school because he didn't like it. Now, I, I, I know that he probably also had to help with the family. We saw that with Rockefeller and Carnegie as well. But the difference, I believe, between Vanderbilt and them was they valued learning and education from one way or another. Right. Historically, the, the Dutch people in America, they were very frugal, very thrifty. They didn't throw things away. Like, I mean, anyone then didn't throw things away like we do now, but they were especially thrifty. And, thrifty for the time period. Right. I mean, the way their family dichotomy worked is the mother and father both had financial interest. So if you're the the wife in the household, you actually had, could have property in your name. It was very common for Dutch ancestry in America to do that and to have your own money and your own form of savings. As far as his family, they they were poor, but they were they didn't stay that way. One thing the Dutch were really good at is making deals and becoming merchants, at least the Vanderbilts. As far as I know, they're they didn't I mean if they made bad business practices, they didn't make it without some sort of mediation of risk. So, one story was that Vanderbilt's father Went, he made a deal with somebody and it fell through, and he owed some money. He told his wife, and his wife went to wherever she kept her store of money and handed him the exact amount to pay off his debt. That just shows you how much they saved and how much they had in like the thought process behind, oh, we need something to fall back on. I guess you would call that kind of like smart investing in a way. I mean, yeah. back then, debt was not... It wasn't the mainstay of the, of the economy like it is today, but... Right. You didn't go to debt unless you needed to start a business. You didn't really go into yeah. debt for a house or, or land. I mean, you could, but that wasn't as popular as it is today. Here you have to. Well, also, I think land was fairly cheap in the beginning of the United States because we had so much of it compared to the population size. Yeah, you have to think. We didn't colonize, or we didn't populate most of the... Uh, I mean, we really, we only have east of the Mississippi at this point, and not even all of it. Yeah, I mean, you're still predominantly on the coast at this point. Right. Cities and 
are just now starting to pop up on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. Appalachian for some people. That's going to prove uh, very instrumental in the future with coal. Very much so. Diving further into Vanderbilt's early life, he so he quit school at age 11, and by 16, after learning the trades of the ferry service, he wanted to start his own service. But he did not have any money to do that. So there's some conflicting arguments on how he managed to do this. One is he borrowed $100 from his parents, right? He bought his first sailing vessel to ferry people across the uh, Staten Island Sound. Interesting, interestingly enough, this was called a periauger. It was a, it was a shallow draft two mast sailboat, and it was uh, it was predominantly meant for ferrying materials and people. And he named it the Swiftsure. Now the other side of this was so so continuing from that, he borrowed the hundred dollars, and because he borrowed it, he had to pay his parents back. And what he did was he split the profits fifty fifty. Now the other story was he didn't buy it. His parents or his father bought it, right? And he helped run it and then got to keep half of the profits after a certain time. Yeah, it was after a certain time of the day. I can't remember exactly, but it was like after, let's say after business hours. So anything that you wanted to uh, make extra, you could work over. So he didn't actually make money off of it unless he was ferrying people, quote unquote, overtime. Right. So part of the first mythology of this is that he he actually um, told his friends that he wanted this boat so they could all have, have fun in the summer or whenever the weather was good. But he had no interest in doing that. He actually just wanted to, to make money. I think the story goes, like, they help him fix it up a little bit. And he's like, oh, we're going to have a great time. And he just goes to make money with it. It, it never helps him. Never never goes out for leisurely sailboating. It doesn't say that he doesn't, but he didn't have any inclination to do that. Hey, you, you got to do what you got to do. Continuing from that. So, so he's learning how to run a fairing business. And he is so full of uh, what we would call piss and vinegar that other captains of other of other boats and whatnot started calling him the Commodore. And it's a nickname that stuck for the rest of his life. Now, the fascinating thing behind this is that was a common nickname to give young sailors that were, you know, f- very full of life and energy eagerness. But as life went on, we, we come to understand that the Commodore only means f- one person, and that is Cornelius Vanderbilt. Right, and part of the story would go that he was actually a pretty good uh, like he gave a lot of guff like he he was he was a rough and tumble kind of person he was he would i mean he wasn't against yelling at his his um the people he was ferrying i mean they they're paying money but he was like if you didn't get out of the way he would yell at you move you he was not he was a very serious guy yeah he was very rough around the edges and we and we find out later and this is probably mainly due to his upbringing is he was a sailor and he spoke like a sailor yeah. So that's something that that he does not have in common with our two previous subjects that he didn't I mean he didn't value education like formal education. He was kind of a just a a gruff guy, a really rough um sailor. It kind of reminds me of when I pictured it I kind of pictured Captain Ahab almost. <laughs> you know, that it, it reminds me of people who so, if you are listening and you're not from the South, there's a very specific Southern culture. And part of that culture is, you know, we're very, very uh, strong-minded. 
you know, individuals for the most part, I can do things myself. And I'm not saying the rest of the U.S. isn't this way either, but it just seems in my personal experience and family is, you know, I don't care what other people think, you know, I may not dress the best. I may not talk the best, but I'm going to, I'm going to go be the best. Right. And it seems like he kind of also had that and he continued that throughout his, his life. I, I wouldn't, so I don't know if it, Maybe from an early age, he did not value formal education. I think later in life, he felt differently. I believe that he was embarrassed about it. And we'll talk about that more in the future. But there's definitely moments where he would avoid doing writing himself because he didn't know how to spell properly or correct grammar. And it's something that always haunted him because the wealthy, you know, historic wealthy elite of of New York didn't really accept him because of this in a way. But... So one example of that would be in one letter he wrote C is in ICU. He wrote it three different ways. It was S E E, S E A, and S E, all meaning the same exact thing. Maybe he was like, if I spell it differently every time, at least I know I hit it once. Yeah, broken <laughs> clock right right uh, twice a day. I mean, you you can always poke fun at Vanderbilt's lack of grammar and spelling errors, but. He he did build a monumental empire, so... You're going to see that later as we talk about it in uh, the, the future episodes, because most people who had these kind of enterprises, like sailing enterprises, you know, they're very, uh, you know, higher class, you know, kind of dressed the part, uh, drank the Chardonnay and stuff like that, but Vanderbilt was not one of those. He did it by the, like, you know, the skin of his teeth. He And, and because of that, he was pretty ruthless. There are some... Very fascinating facts that we can't talk about here because we have to talk about in a future episode that are very, very cool. And he kind of wrote the book on how to create a corporation and take over other companies. Being this rough and tumble kind of person, he ended up getting married in 1813 at age 19 to his first cousin named Sophia Johnson. First cousin. That's a... Even for that time, it was pretty unusual to do that. You're talking about the early 1800s. Still, I mean, while while it wasn't as uncommon as it is now, it's it still wasn't looked upon like something you would typically do or something that was normal. I mean, heck, that's what we're talking about it today. So as he like the reason the reason he got married in some aspects was that he started his business. He was moving out, and that was the next thing to do in life was to get married, have children. Interestingly enough, he ended up having 13 children with Sophia, 11 which made it to adulthood. That's actually a pretty good uh, survival rate. It, it is a very good survival rate, but geez, would can you imagine 11 children? How many, like they're just they can be running around you all the time. I guess you just give one to the other one to raise. No, he did not uh he was a classic he was a classic person that would have been uh, favorable to certain children. Oh, of course, yeah. You can kind of see that where during his will, and we talk about that in his uh, his later life and death. You'll you'll. I want to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. I hope that you are enjoying it. Also, I would like to ask if you could leave us a five star review on Apple Podcast, Spotify or anywhere you listen, and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here. 
Also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pminespod, where you'll also get a visual representation, not just the audio of what we talk about here. Now back to the show. Kind of understand that. This is also around the time of the War of 1812, which, if you don't know, is the second war between the U.S. and Britain after the Revolutionary War. Vanderbilt was only 18 at the beginning of the war, and he got married, as we just said, in 1813 to his first cousin, Sophia, and he continued focusing on his shipping business. So he did not have to worry about playing a complete role in the War of 1812. He didn't skirt it. So we, we had talked about that previously in the Civil War, people already having their wealth and paying. And we'll talk about that for Vanderbilt as well. But this is the War of 1812. He didn't have to worry about that. He focused on uh, carrying troops and and other goods across to the various states. I thought it was worth mentioning because he made money from it and it helped him establish a consistent business, like consistent... Uh, I guess consistent customers. Um, right. And this kind of cemented him as a really good sailor, too, is he was actually well-known as a good sailor. One anecdote would be that there was a, a bad storm that he was uh, moored off of one of the piers, and he saw a, a boat that was, like, drifting about. It kind of got loose. But there were 31 passengers on it, and no one else would go help him. So he sailed out there and got 12 of them off before he had to like disconnect and come back. But that kind of submitted him as one of the best sailors in the area. So what happened to other passengers on board? They made it. They just had to go adrift for about, I think it was six or seven hours. Oh, wow. But they, they did end up surviving. He just helped 12 of them while he could. Hey, there you go. You're talking about an 18, 19 year old got married young, which was not uncommon. Uh, first cousin, somewhat uncommon. And had 13 children, 11 of which survived to adulthood, and used the War of 18... Well, I wouldn't say used the war, but during the war, he was able to really establish himself, as you said, as a very good sailor and captain. Grew his shipping transportation business. I guess you would call it that in general, mostly considered a ferry business. And then he, after the War of 1812, he started gathering more... Uh, ships for for his ferrying business. So we talked about the first one he bought, and then he eventually added his brother-in-law's schooner named the Charlotte, which he traded uh, in food and merchandise with his with a continued partnership with his father. And then in 1817, the the late fall of 1817, prominent ferry entrepreneur named Thomas Gibbons asked Vanderbilt to captain his steamboat between New Jersey and New York. Vanderbilt's kind of operating his own, well, I wouldn't say kind of, he's operating his own ferry business. I think he's also starting to invest in some real estate. And you're talking about a kid, basically. And he's doing quite well at it, too. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's predominantly rich, but he's he's not super poor anymore. He's making a living. Yeah. And so, because of his acumen as a cab, well, I'd say as a sailor, he is offered captainship over a steamboat, which he was very fascinated with. And you have to think about steamboats are fairly new. Steam technology is very modern. Yep. Funny enough, this is actually going to be the only time he reached an employer. He signed an employment agreement with anyone. 
it was one it was one hell of an opportunity though because it gave him the ability to add captain to his to the feathers in his cap right but it also gave him experience with a commercialized ferry operation beyond just him running a small schooners and and whatnot across it and he uh he also maintained his own sailing business during this too yeah, so he never gave up his ferry business. He continued managing it as he also captained the premier steamboat for Thomas Gibbons. And then he eventually became the business manager for Gibbons. He rose, quote unquote, through the ranks and helped Gibbons manage his steamboat operation. And this helped him kind of learn the ins and outs on a grander scale and also rub elbows with uh, more important people, right? This kind of gave him the opportunity to, to add what he was missing in his own career, like schmoozing with people, getting the biz- the business acumen that you would want in running a successful business. Even though he's good at what he did, you'll kind of see the transition from the blue collar to the white collar lifestyle. Yeah, it's kind of like if you were to work in construction today. And so you, you grow up in, in your wiring houses and you do that for like five years. So, so, so you start when you're 16, graduate high school, you, you, you're like, okay, I'm going to go get a job instead of going to college. And so you go do that and you do it for two, three, four more years. You got five, six years, you know, your builders, you know, the other contractors, you know what you're doing. Say you're residential only, maybe you, maybe you start dabbling in commercial, you now have enough experience to start studying to go get your license to be a master electrician, which allows you to bid on jobs. You transition and you're like, okay, you go pass exam, blah, blah, blah. And now you start your own electrical business. And it's just you and then say your brother or your cousin, whatever. Someone that knows the business about as well as you do that can help you wire houses. And say you go and you're and you talk to those builders and you're like, hey, I'm a one man outfit, two man outfit. Let me wire, you know, five of your houses over summer or something. And so you go do that. You have a license, you pull a permit, you do everything. Over a course of several years, you get, you know, five more years into it and now you have, you know, five crews underneath you and you're no longer wiring the houses. Now you're running the business to business operation. And and that's kind of what Vanderbilt did. He started out, he started with his father at a young age, learned how to ferry, ended up paying off his debt, buying more ships or well, I say sailboats, schooners, whatever to build up this ferrying business. And then he gets an offer because he gets recognized by someone prominent in the area that he's a good sailor, and he's like, hey, I want you to captain the steamboat. And and then Vanderbilt, not officially being recognized, right, he's like, hell yeah, I want to go captain the steamboat, but I'm also going to maintain this business. Right. That was He was actually pretty adamant about not giving up his business because he knew he could grow it. Yeah, and, and he was good at it. And, and that's the thing is is that's what made him that's what made him the Commodore. I think this is where we can draw this episode to a close. We kind of spent a lot of time here, but I think it's important to really think about where he came from compared to the previous subjects as Rob had mentioned that we talked about because he did come from a similar, you know, poor background, but he approached it differently and he did live in a slightly different time period than those other two people. He was the one that helped establish the means that the other people were able to take advantage of. So, and the demographic or the demographics of the area were completely different too, because you had a lot of immigration at the time. Because you're in New York, I mean, you're Staten Island. You know, you're right there at the hub of a lot of things going on. 
Yeah, like we talked about, Rockefeller started in New York at a very young age and ended up moving to Cleveland, which is where he is known to be from. That's where he was buried. And then Carnegie, you know, he immigrated, you know, but he went to Pennsylvania and took up what was prominent there, which was metal and steel. So, well, I look forward to um, talking more about Vanderbilt in the uh, next episode. Can Can you give us a little preview real quick? So, on the next episode covering Vanderbilt, we are going to discuss, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to discuss about a lawsuit, which was actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and this is very important on two different levels, not so much for Vanderbilt specifically, but more of the history and what Vanderbilt did and didn't do, and talk about a future empire in steamboats that Vanderbilt built up. Very and there's also some very juicy aspects outside of just the lawsuit this episode right. too, and this also sets up a precedent for the future of monopolies as well. Well, actually, I think you'll have to wait to find yeah. out the term that we now call uh, cornering the market. There's a term called a hostile takeover. Dun 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 dun, dun. and we'll explain to you how Vanderbilt is involved in that on the next episode of Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at pmindspod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening prestigious minds.